It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Something to note. All myths have many versions and variations. For this episode, we've selected those we felt are the most dramatic and entertaining and supplemented them with additional research into Egyptian traditions. Because mythology comes from oral tradition, there's a wide variety across sources. Historians differ on the pronunciation of the main character's name in this episode. So for our purposes, we will be calling him Thoth. Our myths may not always be the version you're familiar with, but we hope you'll enjoy them. The Nile flowed northward, black with sediment and hissing with the drum of a million mosquitoes. Its waters harbored some of the most dangerous creatures in the world. 20-foot crocodiles, aggressive hippopotami, venomous black mambas. Yet all those creatures paled next to what would join them tonight. Tonight, the waters of the Nile would be endowed with something more treacherous than anything known on heaven and earth. The hooked beak of a grand bird cut the thrashing waters below. It was a giant ibis, clutching a radiant object in its talons. The ibis vigorously flapped its wings and hovered above a carefully chosen spot on the Nile, deep, dark. Only the most fearless would dare to venture to this place, the perfect hiding spot. The water bubbled with a dark, mysterious magic. Then, with a mere flick of the bird's beak, the waters parted. The bottom of the Nile was meters deep and thick with muck. The ibis flung the radiant object to the river floor. Its light illuminated the water for miles. This wasn't just any object. It was the doorway to transcendence, the key to understanding the celestial world. The ibis landed and splayed its large, wet wings. As it settled, the torso of a man formed from its feathers. It was Thoth, god of knowledge and judge of the dead. He shook off the last of his ibis form and stared down at the glowing object, a book more powerful than any weapon. Thoth knew he had to hide it where no man would dare seek it. Whoever read from this book would possess a power to rival the gods. Welcome to Mythology on the Parcast Network. Every Tuesday, we present dramatic stories from ancient mythology and explore their origins. I'm your host and narrator, Vanessa Richardson. Today, we're focusing on the Egyptian god Thoth, creator of writing and scribe to the deities. To read from the Book of Thoth was to know the gods themselves, but it came at an extreme cost. 
At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Knowledge, the ultimate power. Strength could command armies and win wars, but knowledge could transcend time. Thoth's knowledge wasn't just erudite, but also omniscient. He knew the secrets and thoughts of men before they themselves could utter them. He knew the wonders of the universe and all that inhabited it. This made Thoth one of the most revered of the Egyptian gods, worshipped longer and more widely than almost any god in the Egyptian pantheon. Temples and libraries from the pre-dynastic to Ptolemaic period, approximately 6,000 to 30 BC, were erected in his honor and adorned with pictures of his celestial forms, the sacred ibis and the baboon. Recognized by the Greeks as a form of Hermes, and dubbed Hermes Trismegistus, meaning Thoth three times great. Thoth's sage abilities were not only worshipped by humans, but also by the nine great gods of the Egyptian Ennead. They regularly turned to Thoth to be their voice, their eye, their healer, and their scribe. While Thoth is best known as god of the scribes and scribe to the gods, he was additionally credited as god of astrology, magic, science, religion, philosophy, language, and ultimate judgment. As ultimate judge, the sun god Ra endowed Thoth with maintaining the sacred element of ma'at, or complete balance, in the universe. Maintaining Ma'at placed him in the middle of some of the most famed conflicts in Egyptian mythology. The origin of Thoth is as conflicted as the god himself. Some say he formed from the lips of Ra at the beginning of creation. Others contend he was a self-creating god who was both laid and hatched from a cosmic egg. In an even wilder story, Thoth is said to have been born from an epic conflict between Horus, the god of order, and Seth, the god of chaos. He emerged from the head of Seth in a golden disc made of Horus's semen, the literal love child of order and chaos. To the Egyptians, this made complete sense, for one cannot have order without chaos, good without evil, or day without night. In fact, it was Thoth's power over day and night that gave us the 365-day calendar we know today. Newt, goddess of the night sky, and her brother Geb, god of the earth, had done something they should not have. They fell in love and conceived children. Angry and fearful that their offspring might one day rival his power, the sun god Ra decreed that Newt was forbidden to give birth on any day in the 360-day Egyptian calendar. Newt's prolonged pregnancy was unnatural and upset Ma'at, so Thoth set out to restore balance in the universe by finding a way around Ra's decree. 
Khonsu, the god of the moon, was an avid player of the ancient board game Senet. He was also the only god outside Ra who possessed heavenly light, so Thoth decided to engage him in a little friendly competition. Ha! I win again, Thoth. After the last two games, I'm beginning to doubt your wise reputation. Even the most learned deity cannot compete with chance. Chance has nothing to do with it. Everyone underestimates the moon. I'm full of surprises. Of that, there is no doubt. Perhaps just one more game? It's late, Thoth. Won't your wife's a shot be missing you? I've heard librarians really let their hair down at night. She trusts my judgment. Everyone does. <laughs> well, if you're so eager to relinquish your gold, who am I to stop you? Gold is for mortals. Let's play for something more divine. What would you wager? Secret knowledge. A little insight to the universe only I am privy to. And if I lose? I should like a small portion of your moonlight. It would be nice to light up the world from time to time with more than just my bright ideas. Kansu hesitated. He knew Thoth well enough to know he was up to something, but this was a chance to possess the knowledge he had most desired. Kansu took a long pull from his goblet of wine, letting hubris and the fog of drink temporarily cloud his judgment, then slammed the goblet onto the table. We have a deal. Excellent. Servant, another round. Kansu soon realized that Thoth's skills were much more advanced than he previously let on. In fact, the two gods were quite evenly matched. The game went on for hours, and a crowd began to form. You're quite skilled at Senet, Thoth. I didn't realize you played so much. A quick study is all. Perhaps luck has adjusted in my favor. The two continued until each player had just one piece left on the board. Each resided in the square representing the house of Atum Ra. The first to roll a two would win. Kansu took up the dice in his hand. It was his turn. Just a flick of the wrist and he would finally be in possession of what he had coveted for so long. He looked around. The crowd had grown. Everyone was watching and cheering on their respective sides. Kansu tried to hide his nerves behind repartee. It's not too late to back down, Thoth. You're clearly in over your head. I am a god of reason, not cowardice. I see my wagers through. But if you are having second thoughts... <laughs> you may know the thoughts of men, Thoth. But my mind is my own. I have the utmost confidence that I will be victorious. Then please, cast your die. Kansu gazed around the candlelit and smoky bar. Everyone was focused on the dice he was shuffling in his palm. He had stalled as long as he could. Kansu took a prolonged gulp of wine and closed his palm, shaking the polished pieces vigorously before tossing them onto the table. Three. So close, Kansu. A countdown to my eventual victory. Unless I roll a two and end this competition now. Thoth plucked the dice from the table and gingerly turned them over in his hand. Unlike Kansu, his breath was measured and his eyes focused. Thoth had a practiced air for someone who rarely gambled, yet a bead of sweat on his temple betrayed his confident facade. Thoth was nervous. He gave the dice a quick shake and pitched them out onto the table. 
The crowd went silent as they watched the dice roll to a stop. Coming up, fate is decided by a roll of the dice. Now back to the story. Thoth's dice seemed to roll in slow motion, teetering edge over edge before finally settling. When they eventually stopped, they showed what Khonsu feared. A two. Thoth had won. <sighs> you played me for a fool, Thoth. You are no fool. Fortune was simply in my favor. I will take my winnings now. Everyone turned and looked to Khonsu. If he was to back out on his bet with Thoth, the whole pantheon would know him to be a liar. He placed his hands upon his head and extracted five rays of light from his temple. Thoth began to spin the rays in his palm, first slowly, then faster and faster until he had fashioned the rays into five fully formed days. Five days that stood outside the 360-day calendar. Five days that stood outside Ra's decree. He added them to the end of the Egyptian year, and on those days, Newt was finally able to give birth. Ma'at was restored. Ra was not enraged by this act of defiance. Instead, he was impressed by Thoth's cunning and resourcefulness. Rather than punish Thoth, Ra rewarded him with a seat in his skyboat. From then on, Ra would call on Thoth's resourceful nature and charismatic skill to help him with a myriad of problems. One of those problems was his rebellious daughter, Tefnu. You are being unreasonable. I can't remain in this home any longer. The daughter of Ra will not be attending a festival of mortals. We rejoice in their worship from afar. You must know your place. It is a festival being thrown in my honor. I am the goddess of the dew. Why should I not be allowed to sing and dance in the rain? My word is finite. You will do as you're told. My will is my own. Do not mistake obedience as subservience. Raw seethed with rage. Few deities could get under his skin like his daughter, Tefnu. They both shared a fickle temper and regularly argued, but this time he had pushed her too far. Tefnu raised her hands to the sky and screamed. The clouds swirled and funneled down into her fingertips. The sky turned stormy black as all the mist from the air was sucked into her arms. She splayed her legs and waves of water rushed to her feet. Droplets emerged from the dirt below and rolled towards her toes. Then everything was still. The land surrounding her was brown and cracked. Still enraged, Tefnu began to run. She ran away to Nubia and took all the water of Egypt with her, leaving the land dry and in chaos. Ra presided over a decaying land and a devolving people. Their worship and faith in the gods waned. Ra had to coax Tefnu back, but dealing with Tefnu took a special skill, a skill only one god in particular had mastered. 
Both. Let's have a drink. No, thank you. It impairs my judgment. We'll pour one out for the dead, then. Wine is more available than water these days. You'd think the people would rejoice at that. Tefnu refuses to come home. Without her presence, I will lose control over Egypt. Even in this desert kingdom, the people need water. Would you like me to transcribe a letter? No, she would destroy a letter. She has destroyed everything and everyone I've sent to summon her home. Then how may I be of service? I'm sending you to summon her home. But you just... Tefnu is a formidable goddess, much fiercer than I. It is not your might, but your acumen I trust. She needs convincing. Who better to do that than the god of reasoning himself? Are you sure she won't try to destroy me? I'm sure you should disguise yourself. Thoth heeded Ra's warning and took the shape of a baboon, one of his sacred forms, before setting out on his journey to retrieve the petulant goddess. Once in Nubia, Thoth discovered Tefnu had transformed herself into a fearsome, fire-breathing lioness. Thoth approached her cautiously as she chomped on the hot, red meat of a newly slaughtered ibex. The lioness raised her head and faced Thoth, blood dripping from the corners of her powerful jaws. She saw through his baboon disguise immediately. Flattery won't get you far with me, Thoth. Are you carrying the word of my father? He misses you. He wants you to return home. He misses his precious water, not me. A great kingdom awaits you in Egypt. A great kingdom under his control, his rules. Here, I have freedom. I can roam, I can hunt, I can sleep. I can do it all whenever and wherever I choose. Tell my father he should get used to riding camels. Thoth tried for days to convince Tefnu to return. He praised her beauty, her wit, her power, but she would not be swayed by compliments. He told her stories of her father's love and her family duty, but she would not be pressured by obligation. He entertained her with fables and listened to her woes, but she would not be moved by companionship. Thoth began to feel as if the task was hopeless. What more can I say to you, Princess? You must come home. I am in charge here. Flames shot from Tefnu's eyes and mouth. She clawed the sky as if challenging the sun itself. Animals fled from her, afraid of becoming her next victim. Tefnu regarded them with a tinge of sadness, and Thoth saw a look of regret flash across Tefnu's face. She was right. Tefnu was indeed in charge here, but she was also alone. You are not loved here as you are loved back home. <laughs> oh, you speak of my father. I speak of the Egyptian people. They have been in constant sorrow since you left. Tefnu paused in thought. She had not considered the mortals she'd left behind, the people that built her temples and offered her sacrifices. Thoth pushed. They grieve daily. Chaos has taken a hold of the streets. Your presence was essential to their lives, and without you, they are lost. 
I never meant to hurt anyone. Oh, imagine the jubilation they would feel upon your return. The festivals they throw in your honor. Festivals? Unlike anything on heaven or earth. <sighs> I do love a good festival. Thoth's baboon lips curled into a smile. Tefnu returned to Egypt accompanied by Nubian musicians and dancers traveling up the Nile from city to city, restoring water and rejoicing. She finally got to attend a festival, and Ra allowed her to relish in the freedom she so deeply desired. Thoth had done his job. Ma'at had been restored once again. Maintaining Ma'at wasn't always about winning a game of poker or fetching a princess home. Sometimes it meant Thoth had to be merciless and cruel. This was certainly true when it came to protecting his most famed possession, his written word. While many books are attributed to Thoth, only one is fabled to have been written in his own hand. This book of Thoth possessed many great and powerful spells. Among them was the ability to talk to animals and to see the gods themselves. But these powerful spells came at a terrible price. Nanefercopta was a beloved prince with skills that stood outside his royal patronage. He was a great navigator, an enlightened scholar, and a powerful magician. He was also a committed husband and doting father, loved as much by his wife and son as he was by the people of Egypt. Nanefercopta had everything one could desire in life, yet he still longed for the fabled power of the Book of Thoth. For years, Nanefercopta sought the Book of Thoth. He found his first lead when he visited a sacred library outside Hermopolis, and a priest told him about a magic book buried at the bottom of the Nile. Bursting with excitement, Nanefercopta ran to his father, the pharaoh, who agreed to provide him with a royal boat with which to retrieve the book. Nanefercopta knew the journey would be perilous and did not want to put anyone in harm's way. So he used his magical acumen to fashion a crew out of wax and bring them to life. They emerged from his spell fully formed and wholly obedient, a group of waxen seamen fit for the magical journey. Men halt! Back the mainsail! Waves thrashed the wooden siding of their royal ship. Nanefercopta clung to the mast and thought of his wife, Awere. She had begged him not to go in search of the book, pleaded with him to stay. They had privilege, love, a beautiful son. What more could they ask for? Looking down at the black waters below, Nanefercopta couldn't help but think that perhaps she was right. This is it. This is the place. Nanefercopta knew he would not be able to simply reach below the surface and extract the great book. So before leaving harbor, he had filled every inch of the vast ship with sand. He raised his hands over the sand and bellowed an incantation. The sand rose into the air, tiny grains dancing beneath his fingertips. He flailed his arms outward and cast the sand into the Nile. It rushed and swirled around him before settling into a shoal around a pocket of water. 
He walked out onto the shoal and looked down at the water. It was thrashing with horrifying creatures, serpents, scorpions, and reptiles, each one more vile and menacing than the next. Non-Efercopta looked back at a terrified crew. Even wax soldiers knew there was much to fear, but Non-Efercopta was resolute. He closed his eyes and began to chant. The water parted, forming thick walls that stretched down to the bed of the river. The creatures backed down at this show of power, sequestering themselves inside thickets of underwater papyrus and bamboo. However, one creature was immune to Non-Efercopta's words. Its red-eyed slits stared him down from behind a fanged jaw, dripping with venom, consuming its own tail in an infinite circle of creation. Its massive body, at least 100 feet in length, coiled around an iron box wedged into the muck below. This was Thoth's eternal serpent, the guard of the book. Nanefercopta raised his sword above his head and jumped from the boat. He plunged downward through the water towards the eternal serpent. He landed atop the serpent's head and thrust his sword into its skull. The serpent thrashed, throwing Nanefercopta to the ground. Blood spurted from the serpent's head as it writhed in pain. Nanefercopta wiped dirt from his knees and climbed to his feet, ready to claim victory. But the serpent reared, its fleshy, blood-filled wound healed. The head lifted, its eyelids fluttered open and blinked. The two red slits stared him down once more. Coming up, Nanefercopta is sent down the road to destruction. Now back to the story. Nanefercopta's heart pounded. Each boom reverberated off the aquatic walls of his underwater coliseum. The serpent thrashed his body and knocked Nanefercopta from his feet. He quickly righted himself and shook off the blow. It would take more than might to defeat this beast. To be worthy of the book, Nanefercopta would have to use his wit. Nanefercopta gazed at the weedy plant life around him and concocted a plan. He pulled strips of papyrus from the water, looped them around the serpent, and pulled tight. The serpent writhed and thrashed, gasping for air. Nanefercopta pulled tighter and tighter until it finally went limp, fell to the floor and died. Nanefercopta swaggered towards the iron box, sure he'd finally killed the beast. But as he did so, the serpent rose to face him once more. Nanefercopta had no interest in turning back now that the book was in sight. He took his sword, raised it in the air, and brought it down with all his might, severing the serpent in half. The prince hurriedly took up fistfuls of surrounding sand and threw them into the open wounds of the serpent's two halves, 
cauterizing the snake's flesh and ensuring it would not bind back together. The serpent lay lifeless, its open wounds shriveling inwards, its red eyes finally closed forever. The iron box sat unguarded at last. Nonefercopta lunged at it and threw open the top. Inside the iron box was yet another box, this one made of gold and endowed with the image of a sacred ibis. The prince swallowed and carefully twisted back the lid. It was radiant, hovering in place like a hummingbird. Nonefercopta gently folded open the cover and looked down at the glowing pages. Each word was resplendent. He carefully began to read. One piece lufi mami As he read, the earth lifted him through the waters towards his boat. It was as if the elements were obeying his inner desires. The fish that swarmed around him began speaking, and he could understand what they said. The seagulls cried out, and he knew the meaning of their words. He continued to read the book. Then, Nanefercopta lifted his chin to the sky and saw the form of Ra hovering in the clouds. The prince realized the ultimate power that he now possessed. He was able to see the gods as they did. He was one with all that surrounded him. Nanefercopta returned to his boat. He would sail back to his wife, Awere, and share what he had found with her. My love, my eyes have been opened to the most wondrous beauties in the universe, yet they are still no match for your visage. I have missed you so. Nanefercopta unfurled a cloth-wrapped parcel to reveal the book. He held it up to Awere, who squinted and shielded her eyes from its emanating light. It cannot be. See for yourself. Awere opened the book and read the first page. She was instantly able to understand the chirp of a nearby bird. I can understand her. She's upset because she's lost her baby. Keep reading. Awere looked up and was overcome with shock. Is that Ra rising in the sky? We must sail to Memphis at once and tell the king. The couple planned their return to Memphis to present the book to the pharaoh. There they would share the great secrets of the universe with the kingdom. But as they were preparing to set sail, Thoth learned of his book's theft. He could not let Nanefercopta spread the power of the book any further. It would upset the order of the universe and destroy Ma'at. Ra, open up! I must speak with you at once! Ah, Thoth, it is the middle of the night. Thoth pushed his way past the threshold, energized and enraged. Ra had never seen the god of reasoning and wisdom raise his voice, let alone lose his temper. So when he saw a harried and livid Thoth pacing in front of him, he knew it was urgent. What is it? It's the Pharaoh's son. He's stolen my book and killed the Eternal Serpent. A mortal has read your book? Can he- Yes. He has devoured the text and shared it with his wife. She too can perceive the gods. I have reason to believe he will not stop there. If the mortal realm has given eyes to our world, it will destroy Ma'at. 
I must answer this transgression. You have my permission to seek justice. He took your book and your guardian, two of your sacred companions. You must restore Ma'at however you see fit. Thank you, Ra. I do not relish in enacting punishment, but I see no other way. I must protect the balance. With the book in tow, Nanefercopta and Awere set off across the sea to visit the pharaoh in Memphis. <laughs> Their son, Marib, played joyfully on the bow. Marib was a precocious boy who loved to gaze down at the soft-shell turtles that would swim alongside the boat. Marib, don't stand so close to the edge. Let him be, he's just curious. Besides, the turtles find him as adorable as we do. In fact, they won't stop whispering about his infectious smile. Oh, I hear it now. <laughs> Marib meant the world to his mother and father. Their love for him was only rivaled by their love for each other, and that is precisely why Thoth chose him. As Marib played on the bow, Thoth commanded a great wave across the waters. It came on quickly and without warning. Marib! But Marib was too entranced with the sea life below and did not hear his mother. She rushed to his side, but it was too late. The wave rammed the side of the boat, tipping its starboard and splashing onto the deck. Marib was washed off the boat and thrust into the dark waters below. Marib! Somebody help! Marib! Nanefercopta and Awere raced to the edge of the bow and looked down into the sea. There was no sight of their son. Awere cried out to the turtles, to the fish, to all the animals of the river, but their efforts were in vain. The black waters of the Nile had taken Marib, pulled him beyond the clutch of any being above or below the surface. Awere stared down in agony. I must go in after him. No, Awere, I, I cannot lose you too. What use is great power when you cannot save your child? Awere! Nanefercopta rushed to the edge of the boat and looked over the edge. There was nothing below but rough waters and foam. She was gone. In one rushing wave, Nanefercopta had lost the two things that mattered most to him. Thoth had enacted his justice and taken from Nanefercopta just as Nanefercopta had taken from him. Ma'at had been restored. Nanefercopta sailed to nearby Koptos to hold a funeral service for his son Marib and wife Awere. Then he set out again for Memphis, his grief too much to bear. The Book of Thoth no longer held joy and promise. Nanefercopta studied its glow with anger and regret. The book had allowed Nanefercopta to see the essence of life, but in exchange, it had taken away his reason for living. Nanefercopta strapped the book to his chest, determined that no other man should know his sorrowful fate, and flung himself into the waters to die. When the ship reached Memphis, Nanefercopta's body was discovered caught on the rudder. It was mangled and yellowed with the sediment of the basin, yet the book remained pristine, pure in its transcendent state. The pharaoh feared its power and ordered that Nanefercopta be buried with the book, 
so that it would cause no further trouble. It was sealed in the bottom of Naneferkapta's tomb, and there it remained. Until years later, when another prince would come seeking its magic. Thanks again for tuning in to Mythology. We'll be back Tuesday with a new episode. Next week, we'll discuss the other prince who discovered Thoth's immortal text and the tragic consequences he faced because of it. If you enjoy mythology, you'll love my other podcast, Tales. Tales presents fairy tales the way they were originally told, orally and unadulterated. Traditional fairy tales aren't exactly suitable for children, and every other Saturday, we dive into another dark, classic tale. You can find Tales, more episodes of Mythology, and other podcast shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help Mythology. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll be back next week with another epic tale. Mythology is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, Maggie Admire, Paul Liebeskind, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Mythology was written by Allison Weaver-Nicholas. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Rebecca Ahrens-Diamond, Jerry Courtney Austin, Heston Mosher, Manibra Haman, Brett Schneider, Jack Scholruff, Julian Smith, Kai Jordan, and Tiana Camacho. Mythology stars Vanessa Richardson. Mythology.